Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. Hello, and welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the official podcast of the ISLC. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we'll discuss a recent FDA approval and a specific molecular subtype of non-small cell lung cancer. On October 11th, 2023, the US FDA granted approval to encarafenib and binimetinib for advanced non-small cell lung cancer harboring a BRAF V600E mutation based on the phase two Pharos trial. To discuss this regimen, the data, and this space in general, I'm joined by three guests in this episode. A little later, I'll meet with a translational scientist, Dr. Sandra ortiz Quaron from the University of Lyon in France to discuss some of the underlying biology. But first, to discuss the clinical aspects of the encarafenib and binimetinib regimen, I'm joined by two thoracic oncologists. First, from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, we have Dr. Greg Riley, a thoracic medical oncologist and the Vice Chair of Clinical Research at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Greg, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And I'm also joined by Dr. Estela Marie Rodriguez, a thoracic medical oncologist and the Associate Director of Community Outreach at the University of Miami. Estela, thanks for being with us. Thank you for the invitation. Well, Greg, we're talking about BRAF mutant non-small cell lung cancer. Can you start by giving our listeners a little bit of background on this specific mutation, this subtype in non-small cell? Sure. Well, you know, when we think of BRAF mutations, I think most of us think about melanoma uh, because BRAF mutations, particularly V600E mutation, are more common in patients with melanoma. About half of patients with a melanoma have a BRAF V600E mutation. It's a lot less common in patients with non-small cell lung cancer. If we look specifically at the BRAF V600E mutation, it's about 1% or 2% of patients with lung cancer that have that particular mutation. And that's the focus of our discussion today. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that there are, that the BRAF E600E are what we call the class 1 BRAF mutations. This is the one for which we have approved agents. But there are additional mutations in BRAF class 2, class 3 mutations that we don't have targeted therapies available yet today. These were things that people are working on, and I think we, we have to keep those in mind, particularly when you look at those NGS reports and sometimes you see other mutations. So we're focused today on the BRAF B600E mutation. Yeah, that's a really important point. We're in the age where all these details, this type of granularity is so critical that BRAF can't be positive or negative. It's got to be the specific mutation. And because we now have approved therapies here, we should be testing patients so that we know what treatments are available uh, Estella, does everyone with lung cancer get tested for BRAF? You know, unfortunately, Stephen, still about half the people in our country will get started on treatment with chemotherapy without having this information. But I think um, as we encounter, are using these treatments upfront for targeted therapies, we are testing more patients in earlier stage and advanced disease, and we're able to detect more patients now with liquid biopsies. So I think we are finding patients when we test them, but still there is a large amount of patients out there that will get started on treatment without this information. And more concerning, there's data that despite having uh, treatments available, patients with BRAF B600E, many of them never receive targeted therapy, which you know is very sad because there's an option for them out there. Well, let's let's talk about some of those options when we think of uh, drivers and mutations. 
They're really only relevant if they guide our therapy in some way, and this does. We've had, uh, uh, you know, actually targeted therapy available for this subtype for many years now. The first earlier targeted regimen we had was dibrafenib and trametinib. That combination of drugs is effective in BRAF V600E. It's been approved for quite some time. Uh, Stella, maybe you could talk through that regimen for our listeners. So yeah, we, you mentioned this regimen had been uh, was approved in 2017. So I have uh, patients that have had had um, received this treatment for a long time. What we do know is that you know this treatment for most patients they will encounter side effects. Um, you have to take multiple pills. You know, one is a combination of one that is twice a day, and then one that is once a day. But we have to make adjustments because people uh, would experience pyrexia about 56 percent of the time. Uh, we also have seen nausea and GI side effects. Patients also get concerned about secondary skin malignancies that have been noted. But it is a regimen that when you make adjustments, patients have been able to stay on treatment for a long time. It's an oral regimen, two different targeted drugs. uh, And it is one that's been fairly popular. But uh, as you mentioned, the pyrexia is something that can be challenging. Uh, While it may not sound uh, like a dangerous toxicity, it is one that a lot of patients don't tolerate very well. Uh, with that background here, dibrafenib and approved for several years for BRAF V600E, the new approval in 2023 based on the Pharos regimen that, Greg, you were one of the leaders of. You presented these data at ASCO and published them in the JCO. This looked at a different regimen, but some similarities, some differences. Can you talk a bit about that? Absolutely. You know, the, the combination of encarafenib and binimetinib is the, the trial we're talking about today. Now, uh trametinib, which Estella was talking about, is a combination of a RAF inhibitor, a, a mutation-specific RAF inhibitor, and a MEK inhibitor. And that's exactly what encarafenib and binimetinib are. Uh, the encarafenib is a V600E RAF-specific inhibitor and a MEK inhibitor in the form of binimetinib. And uh, exactly as she described, you know, we knew about the toxicity profile of the available agents, and we wanted to see if we could do a little bit better uh, in terms of toxicity and hopefully see the same or better efficacy with the combination of encarafenib and binimetinib in patients with BRAF B600E mutant non-small cell lung cancer. So this trial uh, gave patients encarafenib 450 milligrams once daily and binimetinib 45 milligrams twice daily. Uh, in the trial, we enrolled patients who either were treatment naive and that's about two-thirds of the patients, or who had had prior therapy for their BRAF mutant metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. In the treatment-naive group, we saw a response rate of 75%, and the median progression-free survival wasn't met. By contrast, the patients who were previously treated for their non-small cell lung cancer, the response rate was a little bit lower, around 46%, and a median progression-free survival of uh, just under 17 months. I think these numbers in terms of efficacy are barely, very similar to what we see with dibrafenib-trametinib. Uh, I think if you look at the dibrafenib-trametinib data, you see maybe slightly lower response rate in the first line setting, maybe slightly higher response rate in the second or later line setting. To me, that all tells us the efficacy is probably just about the same. I think the place where we see a little bit of improvement, though, is in the Uh, adverse event profile. And I'll zero in on exactly what Estella was talking about, which is pyrexia. You know, in in prior trials of dibrafenib-trametinib, over 50% of patients have pyrexia and 5 or 10% of patients have grade 3, 4 pyrexia, which is, again, a very bothersome symptom. 
Whereas in this trial, we only saw 22% of patients with an all-cause uh, pyrexia uh, incidence and uh, no patients with grade three or four and very few patients with what was deemed to be treatment-related pyrexia. So I think taken together, this data really tells us that we have a, a combination that is effective and ju perhaps just as effective as dabrafenib trametinib and a slightly improved toxicity profile. So uh, I think it's, it's a very reasonable regimen and I'm pleased that we now have an approval uh, and NCCN recommendation. Yes, fresh off the NCCN uh, in mid-late October, 2023. Estelle, any thoughts about this trial, about these agents? You know, I think that it's always good to have more options for your patients, especially, you know, I had managed patients with the prior option and uh, we had to dose adjust very early on and um, and patients, you know, suffer side effects when they get pyrexia. Sometimes they do get chills, rigors, they get hypotension, um, hospital admissions in some cases. And there's ways to kind of ameliorate that by giving patients steroids and interrupting drug. But I find that most of the patients that we have been managing require significant dose reductions and you worry about the efficacy of drugs long term. But I think in general, this data, and again, very compelling that patients should be treated in the first line setting because uh, you will have like three out of four patients have a response, which is great. And some of these responses are very are seen early on, which you know we know also from the melanoma data that these responses uh, um, can be seen early so you can get symptomatic relief. So again, the toxicity profile, it's more favorable. So if you have patients that are going to be on treatment for, you know, hopefully more than a year and beyond that they will be able to manage this and that you don't have to um, start those reducing so early for them. Now, this is a, a unique instance where, you know, when we're combining a RAF and a MAC inhibitor, two different pills, that the efficacy and the toxicity are actually better than the RAF inhibitor alone. We know that from the dabrafenib trametinib studies. And, you know, I, I see sometimes people wondering if they should start with one drug uh, before adding the second, assuming that it would be better tolerated. But, but Greg, it's quite the opposite, right? Yeah, you know, it's, it is very interesting that the addition of a MEK inhibitor to the mutation-specific BRAF inhibitors has the ability to ameliorate a number of toxicities for the, the single-agent um, BRAF inhibitor. And uh, we see it again, like you said, we see it both uh, with dabrafenib trametinib and for ankurafenib and benimetinib. Uh, there's a reduction of a variety of skin-related toxicities, in, in particular, uh, these um, skin neoplasms that we sometimes see with single-agent BRAF inhibitors. So that's an important toxicity to keep front of mind. Not a very common thing with the combination, but a possible one. So we need to think of cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma and be, be informing and educating patients and other providers. Estella, uh, if, if someone was taking dabrafenib trametinib and was really not tolerating it well, is this a situation where you might consider switching to the other regimen? I think definitely. I mean, I think, you know, we, we don't think these drugs will salvage someone who was progressing, but if someone wasn't tolerating the treatment, definitely this would be another option. I think the question is like, do you start this agent at the full dose? And that probably will be where I will do start at the full dose and then see if it's better tolerated, they probably will have more dose intensity than with the prior regimen. Now, Stella, I want to pick up on what you started with. I think it's really important. You know, uh, dabrafenib trametinib was approved now, you know, five years ago. I think it would only be natural to assume that this new regimen would be some sort of a second line regimen or something that comes over that overcomes resistance. Uh, but, but Greg, this regimen of encarafenib, binimetinib, it's not meant to overcome resistance, right? 
Yeah, it's a, again, I'll I'll completely agree with Estella on this, and, and we really want to emphasize that that this is a a combination that has the similar mechanism of action, and it's not going to overcome resistance to dibrafenib trametinib. And I'll admit to to my frustration with our field that we haven't uh, better characterized the mechanisms of resistance to uh, RAF and MEK inhibition, and we aren't moving further forward uh, with with this approval. I think we are moving forward because we are uh, providing a combination with relatively better toxicity profile. But I think we really have to do better to understand mechanisms of resistance and move this field forward by developing drugs that target those mechanisms of resistance. And so when we think of resistance to a regimen like dibrafenib, trametinib, or encorafenib, binimetinib, you know, Estella, outside of a clinical trial, what do you offer after this combination? Yeah, so we start in the NCCN guidelines, which, you know, kind of direct you after you have tried um, targeted therapy for these patients first line to go to the standard options for patients um, either for adenocarcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma, which I want to mention, like you can find these mutations in squamous cell carcinoma as well. Uh, so patients will be offered, at least in my practice, we will recommend chemoimmunotherapy. However, the immunotherapy responses can be very variable, and people have looked at series of patients with BRAF alter lung cancers and how likely they are to respond. And there seem to be responses for different class one to three alter tumors, but not all of them respond for a long time. So I think we definitely will go to chemotherapy, carboplatin, pemetrexid, if it's adenocarcinoma, and add immunotherapy because there's a subset that may respond. Yeah, that makes this a little more complex. Uh, when you think of BRAF V600E, it breaks the mold a little bit in that we can see responses to immunotherapy. We can see durable responses to immunotherapy. And, and we also have a mix of people with no smoking history and the people that have smoked in the past. And so Greg, when we think of, of different regimens here, what role does immunotherapy play here? And would you ever consider immunotherapy as the first treatment for someone with a BRAF V600E non-small cell lung cancer? Yeah, I, I think this is really a challenging situation. We, as you, as you alluded to, we have a, a, a fixed idea in our heads that oncogene-driven cancers don't respond particularly well to immunotherapy. And this is supported by the data for patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer, patients with ALK positive lung cancer. In general, those patients don't respond to immune checkpoint inhibitors. There have been lots of big studies that have explored the value of immune checkpoint inhibitors for those patients, maybe in the later line in combination with chemotherapy. We've seen varying results, but it's never been a home run that those patients benefit. By contrast, patients with BRAF mutant uh, lung cancers may benefit a little bit. And, you know, I think one challenge we have is we always try to learn something from other diseases. And in the world of BRAF mutant melanoma, uh, we look at what they've done. And of course, we know that in, in patients with metastatic melanoma, immune checkpoint inhibitors play a, an important role. And we know that, um, that many of them have BRAF mutations. So, so what have they learned over there? And it's, it's interesting. They've, they've learned a variety of things, and they've even gotten to the point where they did a randomized frontline phase three trial. Actually, I think it was led by one of your colleagues, uh, Dr. Liu, uh, Dr. Mike Atkins from Georgetown. Uh, in, in that trial, they, they randomized patients with BRAF mutant melanoma to either begin with ipilimumab and nivolumab 
and then get dibrafenib trametinib or begin with dibrafenib trametinib followed by ipilimumab and nivolumab. Now there's a few issues around uh, patients dropping out between arms of the therapy, between lines of therapy. But ultimately when they look at overall survival, when they look at progression-free survival, their data support for patients with melanoma getting first-line therapy with an immune checkpoint inhibitor. Now, when I try to extrapolate to lung cancer, I'm sort of stuck. Do I extrapolate based on BRAF where and take the data from melanoma, or do I, t- do I extrapolate from oncogene-driven cancers and, and go with the EGFR data? Truth is, I'm not sure. My gut tells me that it's, it's more like the EGFR story now, but I do think this is an important area for us to study more closely. And I think you know once we've sort of optimized our BRAF therapy, which I'm not sure we're there yet, uh, once we've optimized BRAF therapy, I think a, a randomized trial just like that will be perfectly appropriate for patients with BRAF V600E mutant metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Yeah, I, I agree. Very well said. And you know, this is a space where we don't have a, a lot of data. Um, you know, in the Pharos trial, patients who had received prior immunotherapy seemed to do just as well, if not a little better. Than those who did not, but you know, small numbers and you know, there, there's a lot of heterogeneity within V600E that we probably need to leverage in some way. Estella, your thoughts on preferred first line approach? Someone walks in tomorrow with BMAP V600E. Are you thinking immunotherapy? Are you thinking targeted therapy? I mean, I think that these patients have um, have a driver um, mutation, and and they should be offered targeted therapy upfront. You will see responses faster once you overcome the toxicity. And I think, you know, we have to take into account the patient experience. So um, I do recall patients that the pyrexia in itself and the GI side effects have really limited and affected their quality of life. So I think the agent that has the best price, the best toxicity profile in my book will win upfront because it will make your life managing them and their lives better. So yes, I will offer targeted therapy upfront. Granted, I can find it, no. Right. No, absolutely. Good points. Greg, do we know anything about intracranial activity of this of this combination of the targeted agents? You know, patients with uh, intracranial metastases with measurable disease weren't included in this study. I think that is another important area that we need to better evaluate and understand. We do know from prior data that uh, kinase inhibitor type therapy or uh, small molecule uh, therapy for patients with metastatic disease from melanoma uh, there is CNS activity for these classes of agents. So I would expect the same in patients with lung cancer. Yeah, there are a lot of different factors in choosing the, these regimens. And when we think of, of targeted therapy before immunotherapy, it's largely driven, as you mentioned, Greg, you know, immunotherapy generally doesn't work in a lot of other drivers. Not the case here, but the other aspect of it is we know from EGFR, ALK, RET, that when we give immunotherapy before the targeted agent, Sometimes that increases the likelihood of, of toxicity. And I don't know that we know that about BRAF, but Estella, does that figure into your calculus at all? You know, I think that it just takes me back to testing patients early because since we don't know, and, and these patients are, again, very rare, I think even someone who only sees patients with lung cancer like us, you're not going to have a practice that is full of patients with B600D. So you don't know about other toxicity. So I, I would like to make the best decision for those patients up front and not offer immunotherapy just in case, since they have a good option. Yeah, we're also seeing, as you mentioned, the, the testing moving up a little earlier. Uh, we've seen uh, our effective drugs in the stage four setting move up, have an impact on earlier stages in the resected setting, like Adora with osimertinib for resected EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer, 
and Alina um, uh, at ESMO 2023, showing a DFS benefit or, for resected ALK non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, we also have immunotherapy in that space. Greg, let me put you on the spot here. Let's say a resected stage 2-3 non-small cell lung cancer with a BRAF V600E mutation, a complete chemotherapy. What's your next step in that adjuvant setting? I'll tell you that today I'm not there yet on routinely extrapolating what we know from EGFR and ALK to patients with BRAF mutant disease. I think that, um, so for that particular patient, I probably would continue down the the, the maybe default pathway of considering the role of immune checkpoint inhibitor for that patient and looking at their PDL one status and, and that type of thing. I, I think that um, when when I sort of think about which oncogenes I'm going to extrapolate the data for, uh, you know, from the metastatic disease setting into the early stage setting, you know, one really important thing we think about is efficacy. You know, how how what's the response rate? And I think you know, from the data we see for Ancrafen and Benimetinib, the response rate is certainly high and certainly suggestive of some a patient getting durable benefit from it. I, I'm a little less comfortable with the the adverse event profile for a patient to receive uh, one of these combination therapies for years, uh, which is what we would expect to do in the in the adjuvant setting. So I, I'm I'm not there yet in terms of uh, supporting adjuvant use of either dibrafenib, trametinib, or Ancrafen and Benimetinib but I think those studies are worth doing uh, and uh, hopefully we'll get to see those results. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Uh, Estella, does BMRAF V600E ever occur with another driver alteration or are these usually mutually exclusive? Um, so this is kind of interesting because I think as we do next generation sequencing, we do find other co-alterations. I mean, even in this trial, they looked at this like TP53 is found a lot, um, said D2. I mean, there are things that I don't even know what to make of them. So I don't think it's mutually exclusive from other mutations. It's just that we don't know, um, at least in the, some some may we'll learn, will make uh, patients more sensitive if something in the RAS pathway may impact response to treatment. And, um, and in the future, we'll probably have better options understanding that data. But I think today, I don't, there's not um, a commutation that will make me decide to use or not use the drug. So we have now, as of October, 2023, Encarafenib, Binimetinib, uh, approved for BRAF V600E non-small cell lung cancer, an important option, again, not one that overcomes resistance to dibrafenib, trametinib, but a different toxicity profile and another option here, uh, but a complex field where immunotherapy also effective. Uh, Greg, uh, congratulations on, on the trial and the achievement. It's an important study. And as we know on this podcast, clinical trials are really how we make progress in non-small cell lung cancer. So I want to take this opportunity to to ask you for any advice to a patient who might be listening and considering a clinical trial as part of their treatment for lung cancer. Yeah, no, I think this the clinical trials, of course, are the lifeblood of developing new therapies and improving outcomes for patients with cancer of all types. An important thing that a lot of patients um, perceive about trials is that they're kind of a last-ditch effort kind of thing, that clinical trials are something you do after the standard therapies have no longer been shown to be effective. But this trial enrolled patients who had not had any prior therapy. And I, I would encourage folks to explore clinical trials at every step of their care and talk with their doctor about what trials might be available, whether it's at the site that they're at or whether it's in a nearby site that would allow them to receive 
what I think of as optimal care, the care that happens as part of a clinical trial, and try to treat the, the cancer with a variety of agents. Now, clinical trials provide opportunities both for optimal standard care, because oftentimes it's a randomized trial where the standard care you're receiving is, is the, the, um, something that you might receive off trial. But other clinical trials offer agents that are not yet approved. Now, there's a, that's a two-edged sword to, to take a treatment that's not yet approved. You could potentially have excess toxicity associated with that new agent, but it also provides an opportunity to receive effective agents prior to their approval. And I think, you know, in, in the context of metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, where the list of effective therapies, while it's long, it doesn't translate always into great outcomes for patients. So I like to explore clinical trials at every step. And I encourage patients to do the same. I think that's good advice. And when we think of all the really exciting drugs that we're giving today in our clinic, they were all brought through clinical trials and, and some not that long ago. Estella, anything to add for someone who might be a bit concerned or hesitant about participating in a trial? I mean, I think I agree with Greg that, you know, clinical trials are how we find cures and it offers uh, hope and it really offers better options, hopefully, to patients. Um, I would just encourage patients not to be afraid to have these discussions uh, with their doctors and just to know that they're not being experimented on. Like this is based in science that, you know, when we offer a trial is because we think we can offer a better option for patients. But we have, we have to learn about these drugs to see how they're tolerable and how they are better. But there's a lot of safety included in clinical trials so that we are not exposing patients to excess toxicity. Um, and we also need to make our trials inclusive of all populations so that we learn how BRAF mutations, for example, present in different groups and how they tolerate treatment. So that's also an important part of uh, offering clinical trials and patients participating so that we learn how different populations will tolerate treatment. Now, before we move on to uh, talk a little bit about the, the biology of BRAF and non-small cell lung cancer, I want to take a moment to, to thank my first two guests. I, I really admire the two of you and all the work that you've done. Really grateful for how generous you are with your time and joining us today. Estella, uh, thanks for, for being our guest here uh, today. Thank you so much. And Greg, congratulations on the study. Uh, wonderful work. And, and thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And thanks for highlighting this work. I'd now like to welcome to the episode, Dr. Sandra Ortiz-Caron from the Cancer Research Center of Lyon in France. Hello, Stephen. Sandra, you're a lung cancer translational scientist. Um, before we get started, could you tell our listeners a little bit about the general focus of your research? Sure. First of all, thank you for having me here. Uh, the group I lead in the Cancer Research Center of Lyon focuses on understanding the mechanisms of tumor adaptation and resistance to targeted therapies, and we focus particularly on BRAF mutant lung cancers. We use patient-direct models and clinical specimens not only to understand how genomic alterations lead to treatment resistance, but also to assess how non-genomic mechanisms, and in particular epithelial to mesenchymal transition, promote cell survival under therapy. Now, the research that you've done on drug resistance and BRAF, uh, non-small cell lung cancer in particular, is, is very fascinating. As we've just heard from our other two guests, we now have two FDA-approved regimens to treat patients with BRAF V600E non-small cell lung cancer. Both of these combine a BRAF inhibitor and a MEK inhibitor. And despite pretty robust initial responses, acquired resistance remains a challenge in the clinic. It is something we expect to see. What do we know about resistance 
to targeted therapy in BRAF V600E non-small cell lung cancer? Well, very little, I'm afraid. In fact, compared to EGFR mutant or altranslocated non-small cell lung cancer, for example, there is a lack of knowledge on the mechanisms and the molecular landscape of resistance to BRAF targeted therapies. Uh, in, and in fact, this has uh, unfortunately hampered the development of subsequent therapeutic strategies beyond progression on the BRAF and evantromitinib. So what we know is that in contrast to what we see in ALK and EGR for driven non-small cell lung cancer, on-target BRAF mutations are, are very rare or non-existent because the, the current studies haven't evidenced these alterations in patients who progressed on BRAF-targeted therapies. But what we see are alterations that lead to MAPK reactivation, mutation in, uh, mutations in NRAS, KRAS, and MEK1, which are rather acquired during treatment as they are not present in pretreatment samples. We also see bypassing of the MAPK pathway inhibition by the activation of the PA3K AKT pathway. Indeed, patients might present alterations activating mutations in PIK3CA, AKT, MP10. And these alterations are rather present uh, before treatment. So these are rather concurrent alterations with the BRAF activating mutation. In the particular case of PIK3CA mutations, the updated analysis of the phase two study that was published last year showed that two patients who harbored activated PIK3CA mutations before treatment had a PFS on BRAF targeted therapy of less than two months, which is quite a, uh, different from the median PFS obtained in this trial that was about of uh, 11 months. We also found mutations in IDH1 and also in beta-catenin, which is an effector of the wind signaling pathway. It is important to know, Stephen, however, that there is the one of the difficulties to study treatment resistance is the lack of clinical specimens that are collected at progressive disease because this is not routinely done in the clinics. And this has um, really hampered the development also of preclinical models to understand treatment resistance. So to tackle some of these challenges, we created recently uh, the Bolero Consortium, which gathers medical oncologists and scientists from Europe to uncover the mechanisms of sensitivity and resistance to therapy in BRAF mutant lung cancer. Yeah, it's fascinating that some of these present at diagnosis, and so maybe we can uh, sort of better develop predictive markers. And you know, I think what we're learning is that not all BRAF V600E lung cancers are the same. Um, you know, a Indeed. lot of the work that you're quoting involved uh, CT DNA, blood-based analyses. Can you talk a little bit, you know, in, in this realm of work, to the relative advantages, disadvantages of using liquid biopsy compared to tissue for these kinds of studies? Yeah, liquid biopsies have been really instrumental in cases where tumor biopsies are not feasible or available for molecular uh, analysis. Uh, and in this case, we've seen not only in BRAF, but also in other oncogene-driven alterations uh, of lung cancer that circulating tumor DNA profiling can really give us an overview on the molecular and genomic landscape of alterations that can emerge in, in, in resistant tumors. This was particularly true uh, in our study on BRAF mutant lung cancer, since, as I mentioned before, we didn't have access to many tumor samples of progressive disease. In another context, we also have, uh, uh, for example, the study Libellul that was presented earlier uh, at ASCO this year by our colleagues Maurice Perrol and Aurelis Valdus here in Lyon, showing that early liquid biopsy 
reduces the time to contributive molecular analysis and accelerates the initiation to, uh, of treatment, of appropriate treatment in uh, patients with suspected advanced lung cancer. So really showing, uh, once again, the, the use uh, of, of liquid biopsies in lung cancer treatment. However, to date, uh, the, the use of liquid biopsies has been quite limited to ctDNA profiling. And less is known about the use of these, of these tools to study gene expression or epigenetic modifiers uh, in resistance to therapy. There was one very elegant study that was just published last week by the team of uh, Matthew Friedman and, and Dana Farber, showing that epigenomic profiling of about 400 uh, cancer patients and non-cancer uh, um, or, or individuals with no cancer history can help to infer expression levels of diagnostic markers and drug targets in these patients and also epigenetic mechanisms of resistance. So these kind of studies pave the way on the development on other kind of uh, readouts that liquid biopsies can, can provide to understand cancer better. Unfortunately, so far, the, the use of liquid biopsy, biopsies doesn't allow the, the analysis of gene expression and the cancer phenotypes, cancer cell plasticity, which is now really research-based by the analysis of circulating tumor cells, for example. And with liquid biopsies, we can understand so far the tumor microenvironment, and this is something that is, is lacking with this kind of approach. But these kinds of analyses are, are something we desperately need here. We think of BRAF V600D is a very unique subset of lung cancer in that it's got so much more heterogeneity than some of the other subsets. We can see this mutation in people with a smoking history and mm -hmm. those without a smoking history. We can see great responses to targeted therapy and some that don't respond well. And, you know, on the other hand, we also see great responses to immunotherapy in some yeah. subsets and others. And, and so... Yeah. You know, within that group, we really need to better understand resistance. You think eventually we'll get to a point where we'll be able to to more precisely recommend the, the right therapy up front for these patients? So I think it is fundamental to uh, understand the biology of BRF mutant lung cancer and how these tumors change upon targeted therapy and whether immunotherapy would be a best approach first, first line or if tumors might become hotter or more prone to receive immunotherapy once they progress under BRAF targeted therapies. So this is something that really needs to be studied. There are few retrospective studies, that, but we need really prospective uh, trials to test what is the best approach for these kind of cancers. Yeah, we really want to get that treatment right the first time. And a lot of debate about which is the right strategy, immunotherapy versus targeted therapy here, since both can be associated with good outcomes. So Hopefully in the near future with uh, research such as yours, we'll be able to make sort of more informed decisions with our patients because you know, once we start the treatments and we encounter resistance, it, it can be very challenging as these sort of cancers become even more heterogeneous. And you know, when you think of acquired resistance, when we give a medicine like a BRAF inhibitor or MEK inhibitor, whether it's the brafinitrametinib or Enkorafinibinimetinib, when we give these agents and they work at first with a great response rate, but then mm -hmm. they stop working. Then we start to see progression. You know, we, we refer to that as acquired resistance. And in a lot of the work you've done, you've noted that acquired resistance is polyclonal. For our listeners uh, at home, can you explain what we mean by polyclonal resistance and why that's challenging? Yeah, indeed. And this is quite a kind of interesting research paper, research base, but kind of disappointing in the clinical perspective. So what we understand when we say that acquired resistance is polyclonal is that 
uh, we see that individual tumors may achieve resistance via multiple routes simultaneously, and that each of these alterations can display different sensitivities to therapy. There is one study by Gustave Roussy here in France that showed that two resistant alterations might coexist in one cancer cell, which displays the, the complexity of resistance and the heterogeneity of the mutations and alterations that occur at progressive disease. In this study, what they did was target the two concurrent alterations at resistance and then revert the the, the resistant phenotype, which is kind of challenging in the current practice in the clinics by adding different therapies with each one targeting a different acquired resistant mutation. We also see a high level of diversity in the commutations that are present before treatment. We see now the, the, the role of commutations as modifiers of response, for example, in ALK with P53, and in the case of EGFR and BRAF with the co-mutations present in P3CA and beta-catherine, for example. So these are things that need to be taken into account when the patients are treated with targeted therapies and are also taken into account what patients develop acquire resistance to these treatments. Do you think we'll get to the point where we can predict resistance before it occurs? I think that's challenging. I think we can for example, rely on, on the mechanisms of resistance that are uh, selected over time, but that are present in small clones in, in pretreatment samples. I'm talking about metamplification, for example, or the presence of uh, RB1 and P53 biallelic loss in the case of small cell and cancer transformation. In these cases, I think we can anticipate the emergence of a potential mechanism of resistance and eventually targeted in combination treatments at baseline. Another strategy is uh, potentially to use non-invasive longitudinal profiling use, using, again, uh, liquid biopsies uh, in order to um, follow the emergence of acquired resistance mutations over time with a non-invasive strategy. Recently, the, the, the results of the APPLE trial, this phase two randomized trial, were published showing that serial monitoring of, uh, of CTDNA EGFR T790 A mutation allow the identification of patients of 70%, 17% of patients with molecular progression before resist progressive disease. And this led to an early switch to osimertinib, um, to osimertinib treatment. The median PFS between patients that presented molecular progression and then switched to osimertinib versus those who were switched to osimertinib upon resist progressive disease was comparable. Uh, in terms of medium PFS and medium brain PFS, but this shows also the uses of uh, circulating tumor DNA profiling in this setting. You know, I, I want to close with one last question. A lot of the work you've done has been on EMT, epithelial to mesenchymal transition. I think this is such critical work, not just for this subtype, but for lung cancer uh, treatment resistance in general. Can you briefly sort of explain to our audience what is EMT and why is that important in the realm of targeted therapy? Yeah, well, epithelial to mesenchymal transition is, a, is an embryonic process. And in this process, epithelial cells will uh, acquire migratory and, invasive, and, and an invasive phenotype that is due to the loss of cell-to-cell -cell junctions and uh, the loss of polarity and increased interactions with the extracellular matrix. So features of epithelial to mesenchymal transition have been shown in acquired resistance to EGFR um, targeted therapies, IL targeted therapies, and also in the context of ROS1 translocations. In these kind of studies, 
uh, epithelial trimesenchymal transition is evidenced by the enrichment in the expression of bimentin, which is a, an effector of, of uh, EMT, and uh, or enriched expression of ZEB1, which is an EMT transcription factor that is key in, the, in lung cancer, and the loss of ecadering, which is a, an epithelial marker. There are uh, preclinical studies that show that in patient derived cell lines, EMT-associated resistance is driven by the activation of orokinase A or orokinase B that uh, mechanistically will inhibit BIM, which is a pro-apoptotic effector. So uh, in this context, combined therapy with orokinase inhibitors and osimertinib, for example, will lead to the reversion of the EMT resistance or the delay of, of resistance overall. We also see also using patient Europe models, either organoids or salines or PDXs, that other kinases, tyrosine kinases, are activated in mesenchymal tumors. We're talking about IXL or, or FGR1, both targetable, which leads to, to the potential development of, of therapeutic strategies to target these tumors. We recently showed that CD70 is uh, activated in uh, pulmonary sarcomotide carcinomas, which are highly mesenchymal. And recently, the group of John Haymax showed that CD70 is also upregulated and activated in EMT-associated resistance. So this, again, generates rationals for potential combination strategies. The limitation here is that, that EMT is not routinely assessed at resistance to targeted therapy. So we cannot really uh, assess the frequency of these events in resistance uh, and nor treat it uh, as, as uh, we can potentially do with the data that we have from preclinical studies. I think it's really important work and and thank you for all the stuff you're doing uh, to really help us better understand these processes. We're, we're right out of time for this episode. Sandra, I really want to thank you for, for joining us today and again for, for all the work you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening. You can download new episodes of Lung Cancer Considered on the first and third Tuesday of every month to give us a listen. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 